Hello, everyone. Um, you might just want to uh, whip your Bibles back open to Zechariah if you close them. And uh, we're going to have a little look into what it has to say. I wonder, have you, have you ever been to a motivational event? You know, where there's like a motivational speaker and he gets you all pumped up for, for something. Has anyone ever, ever been to one of those? A show of hands if you've been to one. Yeah, Quite a few. I don't know, maybe it was with your workplace and, uh, I don't know, it was getting a bit boring and everyone's getting a bit disheartened and so the company put on a big uh, day away or something. And uh, you go in and there's a kind of, sometimes a, a like company vision thing. This is what we're about and this is what... Uh, we want to do and this is the work that we've got and then you go into a kind of a team building session and uh, you get you get teamed up you become a great team together and then the main bit gets shipped off to the motivational speaker who um, motivates you and uh, me and my brother Toby is here tonight give us a wave he um we uh, used to be part of this big drum group uh, and we used to go around doing these really weird events where we'd get like 150 employees of this big corporation, like Intel processors or something, and they'd all sit down and they'd all get a djembe, a little hand drum, and they, would, um, and they, they were the worst drummers you can ever imagine. Like imagine the worst drummer and then get even worse than that. And uh, they, would, they would become a team. They'd start playing this djembe together and no one could do it. And... Uh, and they get all teamed up and they'd learn a track together, they'd achieve a common aim, and then, then they would go off to the motivational speaker who would motivate them once they were teamed up. And Zechariah is the motivator. That is what he's all about. So if you flick back a page, you get to the much shorter book, Haggai, which I wasn't given to preach on. And, uh, and in, in Haggai, they've, they've all come back from the exile. They all went into exile, the Israelites, and uh, they had a terrible time under the Babylonians. And, and, and God brings them out of exile, and they come back to the land. Um, and it's all sacked, and they have to start rebuilding, start rebuilding Jerusalem. So they, they, uh, they crack on with all, with all the stuff, and they kind of say that the temple will leave that. Um, that'll probably just do that when we get round to it. And um, so God speaks through Haggai, and he says... He says, have you rebuilt your own houses? Have you, sort, have you sorted your own houses out? And they, they're like, yeah, yeah, we've, we've done ours. And he says, but not mine. You didn't, you didn't think to bother with my house. And, um, and so they, they take that and uh, they fear the Lord. So they think, oh, we better crack on with this temple. And they do so. And only a couple of months later, uh, Zechariah um, comes in. And he is here to encourage uh, these, the Israelites to continue with this building. You're getting all apathetic about it, but he encourages them to continue with the building of the temple. But he's not a normal motivator, who in my experience, it's all about you, and you're amazing, and you can do it, and you can change the world. Um, but actually, he's much more about God, about who God is, about God's grand plan, about God's purposes, and what he's doing, and what he's going to do, and all the incredible and amazing uh, things that are in his plan. And so he starts to, to open up that and how that affects the Jews who are the primary audience of what Zechariah has to say. 
So he says, he says things like, um, talks about Jerusalem and Judah. And when the Jews heard that, they would have, uh, they would have thought the certain place and the certain people in their context that they could identify with. And they were the primary audience of it, which leaves us with the question, well, how can we... What, what, what does Zechariah have to say to us in the 21st century tonight at Holy Trinity? Uh, how is this relevant for us? And, and which, what of this can we kind of take out of this massive mix? And uh, in Galatians 3 it says, just at the end of Galatians 3 in the New Testament, that we are, through faith in Christ, sons and daughters of God and heirs to the promises of God. So uh, the promises of God throughout the Old Testament, if we have faith in Christ, it says we are heirs to the promises and heirs of, um, and, and of the line of Abraham, who was a great Jewish patriarch, the first patriarch. And God said, all my people will come from you. All my people will come from you. Um, and so if we, through faith in Christ... We are equal to anyone else who, has, who have ever been the people of God. It says there's no slave, no free, no Greek, no this, no that. Everyone is equal. Everyone in Christ is equal to the promises of God. So when you read in Zechariah a fear not or a don't be afraid, you can say that's mine. That's mine. And when you, when you might see a, an encouraging bit or maybe when God says in chapter 2, you're the apple of my eye, you can say that's mine. That's me that God is talking about if you have faith in Christ. So what does Zechariah say to you and me? This whole, this whole book is framed, I think, by verse 2 that Andy read earlier of chapter 1. If you just flick to it with me, there's going to be quite a lot of flicking, I apologise. And verse 2 of chapter 1, God says, the Lord, uh, Zechariah says, the Lord was very angry with you, your, foref- your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. This is all framed in this relationship between God and his people. Again, in verse 16 of chapter 1, it says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. It is framed with this relationship, with, this, with God's desire for his people to come back to him, to restore that relationship and to, to have that with his people once again who have turned away from him. And, and that's really what frames the book and, and everything that happens in the book and all that Zechariah says and all that God is about here is, is really framed by that relationship that he wants with his people. Uh, in, in, in chapter 7 it's talking about Bethel and, it, um, and they come to God and they say, I said, well, every year we fasted for a month. Um, do we have to keep going with that? They say, Is that, do, we, do we need to still do that? And God says to them, well, you've been doing that for 70 years. Was it ever for me? Were you ever doing that for me? And God cares. He cares about how his people feel, um, we see in Zechariah. Uh, if you flip to chapter 8, verse 2. Um, It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. Burning with jealousy for my people. And recently a young person asked me, how how can God be jealous? How is that? Because we're told 
not to be jealous, then that's wrong. So how can God say that I'm jealous for, for my... For, how can he be jealous at all? And um, I think it's actually a good question when we, when we look at this, and a helpful question to ask, because it, it can help us to see, well, what is this feeling that God is really having? What's that about? Um, and in, in the old Jewish law, in the, in the commandments, um, it said, do not cover uh, your neighbor's house. Do not covet, not cover, do not covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's Porsche. And... Um, and so he says, do not long after those things that other people have. Don't, and therefore, don't be, be jealous um, of other people, quite rightly. Um, that's not healthy at all. But then God is jealous. So what is that? And Alan spoke, I don't know if you were here for that, he spoke recently on the prophet Hosea, where there's this imagery of God and his people. And there's, there's God and then his people who are described like an adulterous wife. Who, who were the people of God who are rightly his, whom he passionately loves, but who in front of his very eyes reject him and turn away from him and go and seek after other gods, other idols. Um, and that's the, that's the jealousy that God has for a people who are rightly his, whom he passionately loves, but who just cast them aside. And that, and that pains him and he burns with jealousy and, a, and an unimaginable love for his people. And so this whole book, um, this whole, all these promises are framed by this desire for God to have relationship with his people, and indeed all of scripture. And so, so God, I will return to my people. That should be sweet, sweet music to our ears, that we can have that relationship again. If you turn to chapter 13, I think that leads us to the the most foundational promise um, in Zechariah, I think. It says, we had it in our reading, chapter 13, verse 1. Um, On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. I think this is the most foundational uh, promise in Zechariah, because it's, it's, it's the promise that everything else rests on. Um, it's, it's checkpoint one, really, on God's plan to restore that relationship. Because God's people have, have rejected him, they've turned away from him, and that really is the heart of sin, awayness from God. That's the heart of sin, turning away, rejecting him. And, and everything else will come, comes from that, all the sort of sinful acts that we think of, all the, the pain, the grief, um, that, we, that, that is caused by that. That will all flow on from the heart, which is that awareness from God that he's trying to restore. And I've got a lovely little doggy who's up with me at the moment. She's a nice little golden retriever. And um, she's beautifully gold. And uh, when she was little, and I used to take her for a walk each morning, she would uh, occasionally reject me and turn away from me. And so we'd just be walking along, and she'd run off. And I'd see what she was about to do, and I'd call her back, Jesse, no, come back. Uh, but she would reject me and go for a roll in something disgusting that she could find. I don't know if you've had this experience yourself. Some kind of dead animal that she's found, maybe some rotting flesh that she thought would be nice, maybe some poo or mud or pooey mud um, <laughs> that she wanted to roll in. And then she would turn around when she'd finished and try and come back to me 
Absolutely no way was that going to happen. She is disgusting and she's not going to come near me at all because she turned away from me. Uh, Turn with me to chapter 3 of Zechariah. And verse 3. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. And the end of verse 9. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The, the job of the high priest, um, one of his main and most important things that he did, was uh, every year, year on year, uh, he would go into the, into the most holy place and he would sacrifice um, for the sin of the people. Um, so they, they'd kill some animals and they'd, they'd have other offerings as well, present them before God, and it was called the Day of Atonement, where the people's sin would be atoned for. But Zechariah says, you are symbolic of the things that are yet to come. You're trying to deal with the sin of the people, with that, with that dirtiness that is on them, but you are symbolic of the things yet to come. And in, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, um, there's a bit in chapter 10 where, where the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and of animals cannot, uh, is not enough. Um, to, it's, it's, not a rel- it's not a good enough sacrifice for sin. It's only a reminder of the sin of the people. It, it, it can't possibly actually atone. Um, Rejecting infinite holiness, an infinite holy God, an infinitely glorious God is infinitely blameworthy. And the blood of animals just doesn't cut it. So how can God's people turn back to him? And God says, I will open a fountain for you that will cleanse you from sin and impurity. And so you will be able to turn back to me. But I think there's, there's, there's one more problem. Uh, we're sin, people are sinful and, and can't be with God because that sin just doesn't work. So God says, I will, I'll cleanse you. I'll open this fountain. Um, but I I, the average Joe just kind of walking uh, along who's, who's rejected God I, I don't, doesn't necessarily feel any guilt about rejecting God. I think maybe when we reject humans um, or when, when we have you know, hard relationships with humans, we can feel guilt about that. But I, I don't think people naturally feel guilt at rejecting their God who don't, who don't know him. Or maybe they probably don't even know they have rejected him. Um, and so how, how are people naturally going to turn back to God in this, in this time if, if they don't really feel any sense that they need to? Um, and God says, I'll bring a contrite heart to my people. That's his plan um, as the, the last thing that he'll do to get his people to turn back to him. So if you turn with me to chapter 12, verse 10, which was our reading for today. It says, and I will pour out 
and the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So on that day when I open the fountain of life for my people, I will pour out a spirit of supplication. And grace is also translated as compassion. I will make my people feel something um, deep within them. They will feel something about what is going on. And, they, and, and supplication, they will, they will supplicate with me, their God. They will pray, they will plead um, with me. Why? They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The only reason that someone would mourn for a firstborn child was if that child was to die. And one did die for all. He was pierced in his side and in his hands and in his feet. 13 verse 7 says, Awake, O O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Guess which book is quoted most in the passion narratives, in the the stories of, of Jesus coming up to his crucifixion? It's Zechariah. Uh, when all of his disciples run away from him and forsake him uh, and leave him, and he's utterly, utterly on, on his own, he quotes that verse, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. One died for all. He was pierced. And this is the, the extent of that burning jealousy, of that burning and unimaginable love that God has for his people, that he wants to open this fountain that will cleanse them and that will purify them from all the wrong, uh, from all the brokenness, from all the shame, from all the dirtiness, uh, and from, from all of that rubbish that, that meant that they were separated from God. And he did it uh, by Jesus on the cross. And he says, when you, when, you look on, when you look at my son on the cross, him who is pierced, there will be a spirit of grace and supplication. You will mourn for him. And um, that reminds me of uh, the beginning of Acts. Um, it's the first sermon of the New Testament. And Peter stands up after Jesus has been crucified. He's died. He's risen in glory and he's ascended up to heaven. And uh, they don't really know what to do. But then it all starts kicking off. And Peter stands up in front of thousands and thousands of people. And he says, you have killed the author of life. And it says they were cut to the heart. And, and they say, what must we do? What should we do? And Peter says, repent. Literally, turn back, turn round. Turn back to your God. So there's a spirit of grace and supplication. A fountain of life is open for God's people. And they look on him. And, and there's that conviction that's cut to the heart that what, what must I do if this is the truth turn back to God because it's all about that relationship that longs to restore his people to but it gets even bigger even bigger than that if you uh, turn to chapter 2 well I think anyway um, and if you weren't really sure about what I said at the beginning uh, my interpretational manoeuvre um, that we can, uh, we can claim these promises for ourselves and hopefully this will con- convince you. It's, it's verse 10 of chapter 2, uh, which was actually read. 
And maybe shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. And that's His promise that He will come and be incarnate and be man with us. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. God loves adoption. Uh, He loves it so much that he massively invests in it uh, with his precious blood. That his plan wasn't just for the ethnic Jews, wasn't just that I'll open a fountain of life for you and, and you will be able to come back to me and restore that relationship. But I will open a fountain of life for everyone on this earth who I, who I love fiercely. I will open a fountain of life for all of them and I will join all nations to myself. I will join all peoples to myself. And my plan is, is far, far bigger than you could ever know. I want to adopt every, everyone. And that's me and that's you as sons and as daughters and have that relationship. And so... The fountain of life is open. It's open for all of us through what Christ has done. So who, who is this Jesus in Zechariah? Who is this Jesus who opens a fountain of life for us? Uh, 12 verse 1 says, He stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms at the spirit of man within me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flick through a few so you'll have to maybe just trust me. Uh, he stretches out the heavens and he lays the foundation of the earth and he forms the spirit of man within him. 6.13, he sits on the throne. He is a king and he will rule. There's that majestic, he says he's clothed with majesty, that, was that majestic Jesus. Yet 9 verse 9, which was read earlier, here is your king riding on a donkey. On the foul, not even a donkey, on the fowl of a donkey, a colt. And that image of him coming in just the, the bleakest lowliness and humility. Who stre- him who stretched out the heavens, who also is gentle and rides in on a cot. He's the shepherd, it says in chapter 10, but he dies, he gives up his life for the sheep. Chapter 1, he's the comforter, he comforts, he speaks comforting words, yet on the cross, desperately forsaken and lonely. But then you might flick to this one, 14 verse 9. Fantastic promise. Yet the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. And one day he will return in glory. He will, all things, all things will be put under his feet. And that, is, and that is yet to come, and we can look forward to that day. And so we're kind of between that time. The fountain of life has been opened for all to come to Christ, for all to enter into that relationship with him. Yet, And one day he will come in glory. We're in that last time. And God is still about his purposes. Christ is still at work. He's very much alive. He's very much loving and powerful still. Uh, and he's moving and and in, in a sense, our lives are in constant change, all of us. Every day we get a bit older, and uh, things constantly move around and change. Uh, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He's still about that love, about that burning jealousy for, for his people to draw them back to him and to be, enter into deeper and deeper relationship with us. And that fountain is still open. Uh, and he wants us to know him and know his love and love him and live for him. And so I suppose my main message is that love of Christ. If you take nothing else away, that deep love of Christ. And it's easy for that to become, for me anyway, it's easy for that to become very much in here, very much, oh yes, the love of Christ. I quote you all the Bible verses about that. Um, But in some ways for our hearts to drift from that and to to let that become a kind of a head thing, um, which is good, but alone is, is worthless. And I've, we were away with Soul Survivor, myself and Lucy, a youth worker in the youth, um, just last week. And uh, it was a fantastic time. And ask, about it, ask, ask, ask us about it at the end if you, if you want to know some great testimony of God's work. And I think really the thing that I felt him really doing in my life, the way that I felt the Holy Spirit really working in me, was that I found myself being more and more softened in my heart again uh, to to his love and I hadn't even realised necessarily that I drifted slowly slowly to, to, for my heart to I don't know in some ways become hard and to, to not necessarily know um, the love of God in a kind of in a, in a kind of know it no way if that makes sense and, uh, and that's, I think that's really the way he kind of renewed me over the week just to, just to help me to come back to oh, you really really love me in a very overwhelming way actually and that kind of changes everything. The, the kind of simplest bit, but also sometimes, well, absolutely the most important, to shape our lives. And, uh, and that helps me to understand God's love for me. That changes my life. Helps me to understand God's love for those around me, for all of you today. Um, uh, and helps me to understand God's love for those who, for whom the fountain of life is open, yet have not responded to that, whom God is still utterly, utterly jealous for. And we need to know that love again. And some of us maybe tonight uh, need to just come back to that love afresh, uh, that gentle love that rides in on a cult in all loneliness, but also powerful, um, the Jesus who will come again in glory. Um, and we can look forward to that day when he returns and we'll gladly bow the knee and be with him forever and ever. Let me pray for us as we finish. Lord God, I thank you that you uh, value that relationship with us so deeply, the relationship with your people, that you, uh, you burn with a jealousy for us when we are not uh, living fully for you, um, to the point that you would bring us back um, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, hanging on a cross, dying for us, and that you long for us to know your love and to love you, And I pray you would renew us uh, to that love, renew us to uh, those promises that you have for us. Amen.